This episode of Killer Mediums has been brought to you by Zencaster. Zencaster is my podcast recording station of choice. Not only does it make it easy for me to reach out to guests and to coordinate interviews without a bunch of create account prompts, but it also has a bunch of cool production tools for the back end of recordings, including a filler word removal feature that automatically removes all the ums and the ahs that plague my interviews. It saved me so much time on the editing floor. Uh, Want to get started? Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code KILLERMEDIUMS with no space. You'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same easy experience as I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It is time to share your story. Foreigners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. Hey listeners, this is William Sterling, horror author and host of the Killer Mediums podcast that you're listening to. We're here to talk about all of your favorite horror tropes and how they manifest across all your favorite mediums of entertainment, and today's topic is gothic horror. We are joined by guest Neil McRobert. As a warning, this is a very, very, very spoiler-heavy podcast, so if you want to dodge spoilers for any of today's topics, especially The Woman in Black, Dracula, Crimson Peak, or Salem's Lot, then you should definitely turn back now. But with all of that said, here we go. Let's get spooky. Neil Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm I'm well, William. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I'm as you can tell from my voice, I'm in the UK, and it, we're having a really brutal cold snap, uh, and we can't afford to heat our houses, so that that's difficult. But apart from that, all is well. <laughs> yeah, I've been keeping up with it on the news, and it's just like everything over there sounds like it is completely foobar. So I hope you are. <laughs> I hope you are bunkered down well with all of the, I don't know how it goes over there, but in the States, anytime there's some sort of a cold front coming through, it's like all the milk and bread is gone immediately. Oh no, <laughs> we, we're kind of used to this kind of thing. We do deal with cold weather, but we, we, yeah, we've got this massive heating crisis where energy things have like quadrupled. So it's so expensive to have the heating on. So yeah, we're, we're all just kind of shivering on the blankets in our houses. Sorry, this is the most British start ever. You said hi, and I've immediately gone to the weather. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is good context though, because like ninety percent of what we're talking about today happens where in these like freezing cold locations where everybody's miserable. So like we're in the right mindset here, straight from the get go. Exactly. I mean, are we admitting that we're recording this like way in advance of the episode going out? Oh yeah. Cool. By the time it gets to February, it'll be even colder and more miserable. Yeah, yeah, it just gets worse from here on out. At least now we've got Christmas to look forward to. It just gets grimmer in the new year. But yeah, then you know, yeah. cheerful. Let's be cheerful. <laughs> Positivity, that's what the podcast's all about. <laughs> but we're we're getting a little bit away from ourselves here. Uh, I want to start this episode out by just giving you a chance to explain to our listeners, who are you? What is your kind of niche in the horror community? This never gets any easier. People ask me this question, and I always hit a brick wall. Basically, so I'm Neil McRobert. Um, I have a podcast that some of your listeners may be familiar with. It's called Talking Scared in which every week I speak to a different guest, usually a writer from the horror space. I've kind of 
moved around a little bit. I've done some other podcasters, some filmmakers, but always with a literary bent, I suppose. Um, I, I have in-depth conversations, much like your conversations, but whereas yours are transmedia, mine's are very much focused on on one book that that person has written, and we get into it, and then we get into bigger things, what they what they love about writing, what scares them, their dreams, their hopes, their fears, yada, yada. People seem to like it, and I have some pretty big guests I mean, you've got some of those same guests coming up. You, Paul Tremblay and Brian McCauley and, and others. But yeah, that's 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 my kind of podcasting credentials. You can find Talking Scared wherever you find podcasts. People know the drill. Um, but in the context of this conversation, I spent a different life in academia. I I did a a PhD on contemporary Gothic fiction, but that also obviously meant reading all of the old gothic fiction as well and coming up with some kind of thesis it came very close to giving me an actual nervous breakdown which is gothic in in and of itself um so it's kind of the only thing that i can lay claim to being any kind of specialist about i love that your your focus there's so many things i want to talk about here I love that your focus is on contemporary horror, but in order to get that right, you've got to go and backtrack because that's something I found over the last two seasons of this podcast is anytime we're trying to talk about where a trope is now, like you cannot talk about the modern stuff without understanding the classics and what it's building upon. So like meta slashers being the biggest example, you can't get why a meta slasher is interesting until you've seen all the old slashers or a bunch of the old slashers. The, the final girl trope, like all the evolution of the final girls, like horror does a really good job of building on its background. And I love that. So the fact that you you get to play around in kind of both of those spheres and you can introduce our listeners to both of those arenas. That's so cool. I'm, I'm pumped for this interview. Well, quite um, because my thesis, my my focus was was on the way in which the genre is always cannibalizing itself. So I looked at books and, and films that were actually decon the films themselves were, were deconstructing and playing with and parodying and pastiching and doing all kinds of postmodern things to their own tradition. You know, that that's so I had to read everything to understand how the contemporary stuff was was playing with its viscera, if you if you know what I mean. I, I do. And I think the examples we've got for today's episode do a really good job mm-hmm. of painting that picture you're talking about. It's not going to give us the full spectrum, clearly. It's, it's four pieces. But it, it gives us some big beat points in the evolution and the creation of Gothic horror. And I'm just really excited to d- dive into it. But let's start with those big, broad definitions. So two operative words here, both of them like really fuzzy and controversial when you try to look at them too closely. So we've got Gothic and we've got horror. And I'm so nervous to bring this up because every time somebody says, what is horror on Twitter? It leads into this huge like back and forth fight. It's anything that scares you. Oh, what scares you? And everybody on Twitter just evolves into Twitter fiends as we do shouting at each other and calling each other names. But let's, let's try, let's give this our best you know, college try here. What is gothic horror to you? Are there a couple of key elements that we need to be watching out for that define this thing? Right. So I'm, hmm. (laughs) people have written many, many books on trying to answer this question and no one's quite done it yet. So, you know, I am just one tiny brain doing my best. Um, But in, in the briefest nutshell possible, 
gothic with a capital G was a genre that came about in 1764 with a book by a, a member of the landed gentry called Horace Walpole. And he wrote this very slim, what you would probably now call a novelette called The Castle of Otranto. And that is seen as the first gothic novel. You get some miscreants who like to look further back and say that Shakespeare was gothic. But basically, for all intents and purposes, it began in 1764. And it went on until 1824 with the publication of Charles Maturin's Melmoth the Wanderer. Everything within that period is seen as what we call high gothic with a capital H capital G. That is your classic Cambridge Don dusty old textbook definition of what gothic is um, with various tropes within. Um, Obviously, the fact that I did contemporary gothic means that no one pays much attention to that definition anymore, like that historicizing definition. And we tend to say that, that gothic is a mode or an atmosphere. So it's an endlessly movable feast, basically. And we've all got our, our own arguments on what gothic is, on what horror is, on, on where the two align. The, the simplest way to put it is that horror is an effect. This is my opinion. Horror is an effect. Horror is a reaction. Gothic is an intention. That's what I would say. So okay. I'm sorry, I'm getting in the weeds already. Horror is about what you get from it. Does it what does it do to you? And and the old aesthetic argument is that horror paralyzes you and makes you kind of cringe and flinch and look away. Whereas whereas gothic or its synonym terror fascinates you, draws you closer, makes you want to know more. So I would say that gothic horror in its colloquial or its most, you know, user-friendly guise is a it's a kind of horror film or a kind of scary film or book or whatever media you you want where there is a mystery within it and that mystery is largely about the past about something that has happened in the past that is re-emerging in the in the present and that's where that fascination that mystery comes from you want to know what the thing is um and then you get all the apparatus you know castles women in white chiffon nightgowns running up huge ornate staircases you know like skeletons in dungeons all of that apparatus which is the historicizing part of this stuff the historical ingredients but you can then apply that same atmosphere to anywhere from you know the woman in black to contemporary new england in salem's lot it's all about the past emerging into the present i like that okay so if I'm understanding you correctly, and I'm going to try to summarize this into my own like perspective here. So Gothic is trying to describe like the vehicle and then horror is describing the destination. It, it's, it's the, the castles and this historic, like bringing the past back up story that gets us to this, this feeling of dread and this feeling of terror Yes, yeah. It, I went a bit in the weeds now. I went a little bit too dry and dusty and academic there. But yeah, basically, Gothic is an apparatus. It's a mode. It's a, a flavor, I suppose, that you find in the set design, in the maison scène, in the language, in the location sometimes, you know, Salem, Massachusetts, or a, an, an old abbey in medieval France. You know, it's these are these key kind of locations of Gothic terror and fascination. 
horror, I think, is much more a sort of, you know, it's the impact. It's, it's what it does to you when you see it. So I think the best thing I can do to sum this up, actually, is use somebody else's definition. Because there are a million definitions of what gothic is, right? And and they're all eminently kind of, you can kick them all into the weeds and say, I don't agree, I don't agree. There is one that I think is infallible and sacrosanct. And if you don't mind, it's only a very short paragraph. I'm going to read it to you. Um, sure. it's, it's by a guy called Chris Boldick, who who wrote this very famous introductory um, section for the Oxford Book of Gothic Tales. And it's probably the best layman's thing you can read to get a sense of what Gothic is and how it's different from other horror. And he says, here we go. For the Gothic effect to be attained, a tale should combine a fearful sense of inheritance in time with a claustrophobic sense of enclosure in space. And he goes on and goes on. But that's the important thing. Inheritance in time, something from our past coming back to affect us in the present day, combined with a claustrophobic sense of space. And that's where the castles, the dungeons, the locked rooms, the old monasteries come in, the claustrophobic architecture that's so key to Gothic and to pretty much all of the texts we're going to talk about today. So I think that's the next thing I want us to do is if if we've got that paragraph that I think does a good job of summarizing what we're talking about here, let's try to apply it now. We've got four different works that we're going to dig into today. Dracula, The Woman in Black, Crimson Peak, and then Salem's Lot. And I want to start with Dracula because I feel like for the layman, for the kind of casual horror fan, this is the first movie that pops into anyone's head when you say gothic horror. Maybe Fall of House of Usher, maybe people are familiar with Edgar Allan Poe too, but it's Dracula is the forefront of a lot of this. So if that is our operating definition of gothic horror, how does Dracula embody everything we've been talking about in a way that's so timeless? We've seen so many iterations of this story, and we've seen the book from Bram Stoker. We've seen the movie adaptations. We've seen all sorts of Dracula stuff pop up. What what makes Dracula the right vehicle for gothic horror? Well, <laughs> this is where this kind of conversation becomes such a minefield because like you say, I think if you said to anybody, name a gothic story, whether it's a book or a film or whatever, they'd say Dracula, right? And for a start, they wouldn't be wrong. You know, any canon of gothic is going to have Dracula right, right in there. You know, Frankenstein, Dracula, so on and so forth. Dracula isn't a particularly gothic novel in relation to what the kind of, you know, governing paradigm of gothic is. Dracula is a horror story. Dracula is a story about, you know, a a, a monster who goes around seducing women and and, and killing them. You know, there's no surprise it came out very close to the time of Jack the Ripper. But I'm not saying it's I'm not saying that it's not part of the Gothic with a small G. You've got to get the difference between Gothic with a capital G that, you know, creaky old academics like me talk about and Gothic as a, you know, a, a pop culture term. And I think Let's let's now now we've set that that kind of template for what it used to be. Let's be a bit more free and easy and talk about it as a pop culture term, gothic. Yeah, I think the reason that Dracula and in particular Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is the worst title of all time, um, the the, re- the reason that is is so gothic by today's standards is it's it's the idea of what people think gothic is it's you know it's lush lavish sets it's 
incredibly ornate costumes and architecture. It's those painterly backdrops and the the, the, the sheer vibrancy of the colours, as well as the just the, the sheer level of excess on display in the script, in the you know the the, the sets, in, in everything. All but particularly in the tone, it's such an excessive tone. It's I mean, it's a frankly insane movie, but that excess and sense of everything being deep and heightened and ridiculously profound, I think that's at the core of a certain sense of what particularly gothic cinema is. And it goes back to things like, you know, Hammer and the the, the famous Poe movies and, and Roger Corman and, and all of that stuff. You know, that's a very modern idea of what the Gothic was in the past, but it is a modern idea of it. Let's scale back the Gothic horror talk for just a second and just talk yeah. about this movie on its own merits. And yeah. then we'll try to connect it back to the Gothic stuff again. Bram Stoker's Dracula, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, <laughs> like you were saying with the title, holy crap. What is it about this movie that makes it so timeless? What do you enjoy about this movie? What do you not enjoy about this movie? Let's set the stage here with just a hard focus on the on the movie. Strip away the gothic lens for just a moment. Um, okay, this movie. What do I enjoy about it? Well, <laughs> I watched it last night for the first time in like 20-something years. And everything that I think is wrong with it is something I wholeheartedly enjoyed. I, I love just the absolute, everything is dialed up to 11. You know, there is no subtlety in this in this film at all. And it's not a subtle book, but they make the book look like the most conservative thing imaginable. <laughs> because the book is all understatement, right? The book is The book is about things like venereal disease. It's about racism. It's about, it's particularly about repressed sexuality. But all of those things are are subtext and you can easily just not see them and read it as a book that's about a vampire, right? The film puts all of it front and centre, all of it. I mean, this, just the, the ripe sexuality of the film is, well, it's it's quite refreshing, I think, in a, in a genre which has become incredibly kind of worried about sex whilst becoming increasingly not bothered by excessive violence. Um it's become quite a prurient genre horror and it's quite quite cool to see something like this which is just you know pretty kinky like the, the scene with uh, dracula's brides when they're like biting keanu reeves's nipples and there's like droplets of blood coming out i was like christ i haven't seen anything like this in years um i love the costumes i mean they won oscars for a reason i mean they are just incredible when it when you first see dracula the, the historical dracula before he becomes a vampire and he's wearing this armor, which looks like he's been flayed. It looks like striated, striated muscle under his skin, and it's like it's a phenomenal, almost like a, it looks like something from like a, I don't know, from David Lynch's Dune or something like that. It's almost science fictional in its in how it's designed. So everything to do with the visuals are just wonderful. Even the stuff that's aged quite poorly looks amazing because it weirdly looks like a film from the 60s rather than a film from the 90s. So it gets the benefit of retro that it kind of doesn't actually warrant, if that makes sense. So, yeah, the visual's amazing. The tone of it is just great fun. 
the performances which people do actually kind of compliment, I think are atrocious, including Gary Oldman's. I'm sorry, I think it's it's some of the worst things I've ever... What on earth is Anthony Hopkins doing in this film? <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's one of those things where just the entire height and excess of it has to be seen to be enjoyed. I think that's one of the big things that strikes me about the movie too, is it is so excessive in every single sense from the visuals to the acting to everything else. And yet it's this cast and this crew that you absolutely would not expect that from like, this is an all star cast making this movie with an all star director. Uh, I mean, when you've got Keanu, we've got young Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder and just like everybody else, like you, you expect Oscar bait, right? Mm-hmm. And this goes, this goes kind of caricature of gothic horror. And that was, I think, my big takeaway from it was they have all of these set pieces that I typically associate with the genre, and they just tr- very intentionally seem like they're cranking it up to an eleven. The romanticism that's typically connected with these sorts of tales is blown up so much that it becomes hedonistic almost Mm -hmm. um and the the visuals and the castles and everything becomes so so concentrated into these core elements of things that i typically think of as gothic core and then just blown up to the point where they're nearly unrecognizable in their excess what do you think the point of all of that was i i understand that's a terrible way to phrase this question but if you no can, no that's that's fine you can I, understand what i'm getting at yeah so i mean i think i think it's trying to do a similar thing to another film we're going to talk about today crimson peak i, I think they're working on, on quite parallel tracks um now this is me kind of imposing an intention on francis ford coppola and you know Fine, I'll do that. I'll, I'll I'll say what the master intended, but I I genuinely think that whether he went, whether he meant to what whether he meant to or not, let's I, I don't know what Coppola was doing, but what it what it does, regardless of his intention, is it it reminds you how nuts the primary source was, and how much we've forgotten that. Because I think Dracula, right, is one of those books that everyone thinks they know the story. Same with Frankenstein, right? Everyone thinks they know what this book is. Very, very few people who, you know, haven't read it have any idea what the story is. Um, A lot of people who have read it have forgotten what the actual story is because Bela Lugosi and the, you know, endless adaptations since have, have kind of switch the the public consciousness to a point where we we've forgotten what's source material and what's not and coppola makes an incredibly authentic and faithful adaptation of stoker's novel all right the ending's different you know with mina the what happens there and you know the the whole how they're almost reconciled and, and she is she does seem to be the reincarnation of dracula's lost love and and the whole thing about Dracula being, well, well, actually, sorry, I'm, I'm getting sidetracked. I was going to say, lots of people criticize the fact that they, they kind of imbue it with that romance where Dracula is almost the tragic romantic hero. And people see that as if that is in some way distorting or letting down the original. Quite the opposite, quite the opposite. What, 
what gothic what what are the main gothic tropes throughout hundreds of years has always been the idea of the attractiveness of the villain you know it it, it predates byron but byron kind of gave it its term with the, like the byronic hero this this dark dangerous seductive but also you know implicitly perverse character who you you lust for and you secretly kind of root for but they are in the position of villain in the story so you get this confliction um confliction is not a word you get conflict and what Coppola does by putting that romance in there and making Gary Oldman this kind of alluring lead is he he actually returns to the heart of the character the idea that he is the person you're supposed to be attracted to even though you may not want to admit it and that particularly goes for the 1890s when the book was written where people you know late Victorian very kind of staunch sexual morality no one wanted to admit that this this foreign count was the person that they really kind of were interested in. You were supposed to kind of cheer for the circle of light who oppose him. But let's face it, no one did. It's like no one actually, no one doesn't cheer for Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. You know what I mean? Deep down, that's who you want to win. Um, and I think we get we get back to what's the point. I think that's the point, however intentional or not, is it returns in all its mad excess. It actually gets closer to what the gothic intention of Stoker's book was than any other more sensible adaptation ever did. That makes a lot of sense. And I like the idea that we all secretly cheer for the antagonists in mm-hmm. these horror movies because, I mean, nobody's over here sexualizing Jason Voorhees, probably. <laughs> Someone is <laughs> but somewhere. We see that pop up over and over again as we go through the genre is the villains are very much the most interesting characters so they're the ones that we tend to latch on to sometimes mm-hmm. and and in the end we we get these moments where we're like kind of secretly like hoping they pull the thing off so let's take this over to the crimson peak to the crimson peak to <laughs> crimson peak we've got guillermo del toro playing with a lot of the same tricks it sounds like bram stoker is with this excess one of the most striking things in Crimson Peak to me are the visuals. These huge set pieces with holes in the ceiling and snow falling through just gives it this beautiful look and the the costumes and the wardrobes and uh, kind of leaning into the visuals. Mm-hmm. So from a story perspective, from a visual perspective, what do you think Guillermo del Toro was doing here? Uh, maybe with Dracula as inspiration, what's what's he adding to the equation here, maybe? So what Del Toro is doing is weirdly t- making a two-hour film which sums up four years of my research life better than I ever could. He basically, that film is my PhD thesis, just done well. <laughs> because he's, he's ba- it, the entire thing is, is a meta exercise about the Gothic. Um the fact that, you know, now you'll have to forgive me. I'm really, really bad at remembering names of characters in films. I'm great at books. So remind me, what are the names of, the, of, the, of Jessica Chastain? So character names. We have Jessica Chastain playing Lucille. Yes. Tom Hiddleston playing Thomas. Mia Wasikowska playing Edith. 
Edith, right. and that's kind of the core we core we play with here. Lu- Lucille and Edith. That's what I struggle with getting keeping those two apart. Right. So what was I saying? Edith is a writer who is writing, you know, gothic stories, and the entire so the entire film works as a kind of meta commentary on the on on the nature of the genre itself, and the fact that she's she's inhabiting the same kind of story that she's writing. And the rules that everyone talks about, the story she's writing, apply to the, the same film that she's in and it's the entire tradition going back. It's wheels within wheels. So that's what I think is the cleverest thing about it. You know, Guillermo del Toro knows what he's doing. He goes into nothing lightly. He, he's like, just seems to be an expert in everything he turns his hand to. Um, and I, I came to Crimson Peak for the second time this week in prep for this conversation. And when I saw it in the cinema, when it came out, I was really disappointed, really gutted because I I love Del Toro. I think Pan's Labyrinth is probably the best film of this century. And I just, it let me down, right? And I think it was too close to me finishing my studies and thinking about all this meta stuff. I don't think I could kind of distance myself from that. Watching it again, I just think it's brilliant. I think it's flawed, but I think it's just a really audacious, old school, you know, swing for the for the fences. And I think, obviously, coming across from Dracula, you've got that visual thing that you mentioned. I mean, the the, the visuals of this are just beautiful, and you can tell that he's he's inspired again by by you know, Roger Corman and, and and all those old, great, you know, the Universal movies, the, the, the great kind of studio horror movies. You can see that he's really trying to just follow in their footsteps. Um, and some of the things that he kind of constructs, like the at the end when she runs outside and there's that, that icy, almost monochrome scene, apart from the red clay that's bubbling up. It's just, it's just stunning, absolutely stunning. But at the same time, I'm more interested in how he's playing with the genre. And and I, I'm talking too much here, so I'll let you follow, follow up with another question. But I think there's a lot to be said about how he takes both obvious and slightly more niche tropes of the gothic and either redeploys them or just continues them. I kind of want to hear where we're going with this. So I don't, <laughs> I don't want to interject too big of a question here. I just want to kind of nudge you along. So... If we're if he's got some of these traditional tropes of gothic horror built in here, and you say that he's playing around with them, can you pick out maybe one or two of those tropes that are that are most recognizable, and kind of talk us through what he's doing with them that are a little bit atypical? Yeah. Okay. So some that he's just continuing. So the 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 gothic architecture, which we haven't talk that much about but architecture is where the word gothic even came from in the first place you know that's the 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 gothic architecture of, of you know english cathedrals and things and gothic architecture basically was anything that was anything that deviated from a straight line you had classical architecture which was seen as a morally upstanding and christian and the gothic was seen as an aberration anything that deviated from classical lines and then over time, for various reasons, which I won't go into, we kind of reclaimed it as a positive part of English, specifically English, not even British, English history. Um, in Crimson Peak, he goes like balls to the wall 
on really weird architecture. There's, there's one scene where you look down a corridor and you've got these arches that are almost arched beyond what's even practical. And then he stuck spikes on them. So it looks like something that have, like that a Cenobite would live in, but also an old Victorian mansion at the same time. So he, he, that's not a case of subverting as much as, as we say, again, excess, just like throwing it all at the at the storyboard and seeing what sticks. But there's other tropes. Like, I think this film is playing massively off the legacy of De Maurier's Rebecca in the sense of, you know, a innocent, naive young woman marries into a, fa- into a household where there is the ghost, whether literal or otherwise, of previous wives. Um, and then... In, I don't know whether you know, but in Rebecca, you have this character of Mrs. Danvers, who is this monstrous housekeeper who, you know, is trying to keep the flame of the the old Mrs. De Winter kind of present. And she really re- rejects the new wife. And there's, for a lot of the film, you think that Thomas's sister, um, Lucille, is performing that role when, in fact, you find that it's something much, much darker and again, that is an, another trope of the Gothic is incest. Again, either implied or literal. Uh, and of course, we said we're doing spoilers. You find it at the end that Thomas yes. and his sister are in a lifelong incestuous relationship, which is, you know, prompts them to kill their mother and then kill each of his wives ever since. Um, so again, just an excessive development of an already existing Gothic trope. And I just, but, but the one that really, is interesting. And the one that is the most meta, it's actually a commentary within the story, are the ghosts. Now, let me ask you a question. Do do you think Crimson Peak is a ghost story? Okay. I'm gonna steal I'm gonna steal a line from earlier in the movie that I was I was <laughs> looking for some way to work this into the conversation. Yeah. The, there's a line very early on where where Edith is talking about her book and the the editor, the publisher, whoever it is that she's talking to there uh, is very kind of dismissive of it. Like, oh, this is just a ghost story. And she says, no, it's a story with ghosts. And it's very like haunting of Bly Manor-esque. Mm-hmm. Like, cheers to Mike and Jamie Flanagan for working that in there too. I don't know if it's a ghost story, even though we do see ghosts get made throughout the course of the story but i think that the ghosts are a critical element driving the story itself i think the story is this very romantic tale uh, about edith and thomas trying to like find each other and and you know, build this life together that they were looking for, despite the ghosts, despite Jessica Chastain's character. I I think that's the main crux of this story, but surrounding it, we have all of these haunts complicating the situation for them. I don't know if that was anything resembling an answer or if I just rambled. No, listen, I'm the one doing the rambling here. I keep cringing at myself. The reason I ask is because I think the ghosts come close to spoiling this movie. But the, the the presence of the ghosts is very interesting, considering Guillermo del Toro's almost certain deep understanding of the genre in which he is playing, right? So let me explain briefly. Del Toro, right, 
Del Toro is is, is making a film which is a di- direct homage to both gothic cinema of the 20s, 30s through to probably the 70s with, you know, Hammer here in the UK. But it's also a massive homage to the true original high gothic of those novels I talked about right at the start. He's, he's doing both. Visually, it's a reference back to the cinema. In story and in, in theme, it's very much a reference to, the, to that earlier gothic. And that earlier gothic was often talked about in terms of male or female gothic. And female gothic was people like Anne Radcliffe, who was the most famous writer of her day. She wrote a, probably the preeminent classic gothic novel, The Mysteries of Udolpho, right? Male gothic is something like The Monk by uh, Matthew Lewis, which was kind of a cause celeb of its day because it is it was written in the late... 1800s and it features you know rape incest the most horrendous violence you can imagine it's inc- it's like the brett easton ellis american psycho of its day yeah M- male gothic was all about gore and sexual violence and quite well, literalized violence and the supernatural it was often openly supernatural female gothic was more scooby-doo it was a guy in a mask it was always miss understanding or it was always bandits who pretended to be ghosts to keep people away from the treasure there was always that rug pull at the end now crimson peak seems to be entirely in the realm of the female gothic with its romance with its focus on on romantic relationships with its you know with its byronic hero in in thomas yet it also introduces these ghosts which are not from that tradition. Now, these are blurred lines. I do get that. But I just find it interesting that Del Toro is kind of crossing the streams in that way. But only a nerd like me would, would know this. You know, it's, uh, it, it's, it, this, is, this, is, this is hardcore nerdery about the Gothic to come up with this idea. But yeah, I, I actually don't think it needs the ghosts. I think it's, it works as a phenomenal story about a, you know, a, a, a repeated murderer and his incestuous relationship with his sister and this this cavernous house, which is literally seems to, to be bleeding with this red clay. Um, I think that's enough. I think the ghosts feel like an attempt to, to kind of make it more marketable because there's one line in it, and you quote a line, there's another line, where I can't even remember who says it, but someone says that the ghost is just a metaphor for the past. Uh, yes. Oh, I think it's, it actually is. It's, it's, it's Edith. She, he say, she says it to Thomas right at the start when he says, oh, it's a ghost story you're writing. And she says, yeah, the ghost is a metaphor for the past. And for me, that's how a ghost works in Gothic. It doesn't actually need to be an embodied spirit. It can be... It's that thing about the past re-emerging in the present. And and a ghost is a perfect metaphor for that, for something that is still here, even though it shouldn't be. You get it in Rebecca, where there's no there's no actual ghost of the previous Mrs. De Winter, but that but her presence still inhabits that house and that book. And I just think that I wish Del Toro would not, not put ghosts in it, because they're not frightening. And I find that they they come close to making what's quite a prestige picture feel quite cheap. So as you've been talking about this, I've been trying to think about 
when this movie came out in del toro's filmography because most of del toro's older movies have this Mm -hmm. very horror forward slant to them even if they're not horror like you mentioned pan's labyrinth earlier and even though that is a a fantasy story it is a horrifying Mm -hmm. fantasy story like it it leans into the horror of its tale a lot nowadays we we don't see him needing to use that so much so like i'm thinking about nightmare alley specifically nightmare alley plays very similar to crimson peak just minus the ghosts minus some like horror tropey thing being included uh it is still a terrifying tale about a man's descent into um into violence and desperation but it it does that without del toro throwing any ghosts at the screen or any any demons or monsters at the screen he he gets to play it straight there so i wonder i wonder if at this point in his career he still felt like he needed to include that element even though he didn't need to include that element and maybe now he's past that he can do cabinet of curiosities which is horror and then he can do he can do ah, nightmare alley Mm -hmm. uh which is which is less leaning into it see i haven't seen water really. i haven't seen that yet and i actually weirdly the other thing i was going to suggest to you as a topic for this was was going to be circus and carnival horror which is something that fascinates me but i haven't yeah i will catch up with nightmare alley and i just think del toro loves monsters i mean he's avowedly adores monsters <laughs> and i just think when he has the chance when he's working in a a kind of speculative space i just sometimes thinks he can't he can't resist just like let's just put a you know a a blood salt specter in this because why wouldn't you i I think that's it i think he just loves it so much well uh uh, i'll do my best to get del toro on the show to uh talk us through this himself (laughs) well i think he might be coming on my show next year because for unbelievably he follows me um I, i i don't ask i don't know how his madness and he said he will come on the show at some point. So yeah, if I if I get him on, I will I will ask him all these questions. Oh my gosh, that would be so brilliant. But kind of kind of walking back to the other two things you brought up with the architecture, I want to kind of table that thought until we get to Salem's lot mm-hmm. because I think there's a lot we can kind of dig into there. Yeah. Uh, and then with the romance and the incest, super funny line near the end of the movie. I don't I don't know how much he was trying to play this up for the comedy or not, but I just started falling out of my seat laughing as Edith realizes what's going on with Jessica Chastain and Tom Hiddleston. She's like running away from Jessica, Jessica Chastain. Uh, and they get to this, this moment against the railing where Jessica Chastain's about to push her over. And Edith's reaction was, I thought you were her sister. I thought you were his sister. And Jessica Chastain just, I am. And then she pushes her over. (laughs) Like Edith couldn't fathom that this incestual thing would be going on, even though that's such a staple of Mm -hmm. this genre. And Jessica Chastain is just very matter of fact about it. Like Jessica Chastain that happens in these stories push. (laughs) Jessica Chastain is just phenomenal in this film. I just think she's brilliant. I mean, she's always brilliant, but in this she's just, because she's vile, but I don't know about you at the end. I kind of felt bad for her because I'm like, she's someone who's been kept on the hook all of these years. There is, there is a tragedy. Like when she says, like you said, you would never fall in love with anybody. And Thomas just goes, but I did. And I'm like, you know, it, it, it is quite a sad story. 
oh, it's tragic in every single angle imaginable. The from Edith's storyline to Thomas's storyline to Jessica Chastain's character's storyline, like it, all three of the main characters have these hopes and desires and dreams that mm-hmm. they are striving for, and they are so close to getting them, every single one of them, and then it just all gets ripped away uh, yeah. at the very end. And it's, it's, I hate to use the same word twice, but it's it's tragic. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I loved it so much more on the second rewatch when I there wasn't so much pressure on it, and I wasn't look at it thinking like, oh, what is it really saying about meta? I just sort of sat back and watched it, and I probably appreciated as much of the the kind of self commentary as as anybody who knows a bit about this stuff. I didn't I didn't get really into it in that kind of interrogative way, and I just loved it so much more. So my next question, and I want to. I want to have this kind of be our transitional question mm-hmm. towards Salem's Lot. Something that's fun about this movie for me is it plays in two different arenas. So the beginning of the story is much more America. And then we see everybody go across the pond over to, uh, do they ever actually say where? Yeah, it's in Cumberland. So it's up in, it's not far from me. It's up in the Lake District. In, in the okay, north, gotcha. the, the then, very north of England. Go over there. There's this distinct tonal shift. Uh, there's this distinct visual shift and aesthetic shift when they make that move, when they go back to the manor, that I think is very intentional. What is kind of the driving difference between the American horrors here and the European horrors here? How do those two things need to be treated differently? And in the context of this movie, did you pick up on what I was picking on there yeah, too? Did, yeah. Uh, yeah. Was there a shift here? Uh, yeah, there definitely is a shift, isn't there? It's one of the last things you see in the American scenes is a really bustling. I don't know where they are. I don't know. Are they in New York or Boston or somewhere? I don't know. But there's like this really bustling scene. It's like commerce and life, and it's vibrant. And all right, it might be quite brutal, but there's, there is a there's a modernity to it. And then they go back to this very this they go back to this 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 house in the north of England that except for this piece of engineering outside which serves a plot purpose it could be any time from like the year twelve hundred you know there's no real historical <laughs> detail that pins it down to the modern day so it does feel like they go back in time almost so. Are you asking me about the difference between American and British Gothic? Yes, but right. I think, let me lead into that a little bit. You mentioned the word brutality with mm-hmm. America, and it, I think it lends itself well to talking about the two different kill scenes in this movie. Oh, yeah. In the beginning, while they're in America, the, the big kill scene there is bashing someone's brains in with a, uh, with a bathroom sink versus once they get to the manor and once they're over in Europe, it's a much more sophisticated kill mm. uh, with a knife. It's much more intimate. It's much more everybody in each other's faces sort of a thing, uh, as opposed to a sink being in someone's face. But um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe that helps drive the discussion too, but that was just a big thing that I picked up on. So American Gothic versus European Gothic. Well, no, let's talk about that first of all, because no one, literally no one in cinema does sudden, shocking violence like Del Toro. 
I'm thinking, and the scene that always comes to mind is, well, I can, I can think of two. There's the scene, that the injury to Michael Shannon in, uh, uh, what's the what's it called? What's the fish one? Shape of Water. Shape there's, of Water, the, yep. There's the scene with Michael Shannon that's just horrible with his mouth. And then there is the scene in Pan's Labyrinth when, when she puts the knife in the the villain's mouth. And you're convinced that she's not going to do it, but then she literally just slices outwards like a joker grin. And it, it makes you like recoil in your seat. No one does that shocking explosion of violence like Del Toro. And it brings me back to what I was saying about what he's doing here, about the old tradition, because it, it may be something that's just innate to him that he's not doing consciously, but I think he does most things consciously. And that, again, is blending that female gothic with the male gothic, because that violence in the bathroom when when Edith gets, dad gets his head smashed in, that could be ripped. That's the kind of violence that Matthew Lewis put in The Monk, you know, and that those other classics of male gothic. Um, overlaid with this very ornate, romanticised, ghostly gothic everywhere else in the film. So I do think he's intentionally kind of mixing tones and and mixing, you know, traditions maybe to make something that keeps you on your toes and kind of touches, I suppose, all of the different horror nerves. It's got your spooks and it's got your absolute, you know, blood-stained moments of horror. So, yeah, I think it, it, it is going to be balances those things. But, Sorry, to, to your question, American and British Gothic. Um, that is a very, very big question um, that I couldn't possibly answer without another sort of three hours. And even then, what I'll say is this. People get too hung up on the idea that America isn't old enough to be Gothic. Um, I think if we talk about what Gothic really means about the inheritance in, in time, and claustrophobia in, claustrophobia in space, nowhere is more gothic than America. Because over in the UK and, and in, in mainland Europe, where this stuff was was rife, um, we've got the feudal system, we've got aristocracy, we've got deep, deep history that we play with and create fictitious stories from and ghosts that go back centuries and stuff like that. But in America, you've got a short, sharp history of trauma and you've got two what i call sort of primal horrors which are the indigenous genocide and slavery you know and to to a lesser extent i suppose you've got the the witch trials as well but they're more kind of a a singular thing that has its own horror tradition you know but you can condense all of that gothic all of it into the space of like 150 years you know, and it's all there. There are people probably alive now who's, you know, have who, who met relatives or people who experienced this real horror, you know, firsthand. So that that makes for a really compelling backdrop and canvas to tell horror stories, I think. It's just accelerated, but the stuff is exactly the same. You know, you move into a house, it's an Indian burial ground, it's an old plantation, and the horrors and, and the guilt and the shame and their massive parts of gothic like that that kind of congenital generational shame it comes back to get you in the present day it's exactly the same thing it's just more accelerated and condensed the difference is the other part of that equation the claustrophobic space because 
you don't have castles, you don't have abbeys, you don't have, you know, 400-year-old, longer, you know, buildings that, that to work as a kind of, you know, setting or apparatus or scenery. But that's the only difference, really. You've, you've got everything else you need to, to tell your own, your own gothic stories. It's just that the backdrop has to be different. And that's what this film does. It, you see the different backdrops. You see the, it's only the visuals that change, really. I think that's our perfect segue to Salem's Lot. But <laughs> I know uh, I'm, I'm going to go a little off script here for just a second. So talking about this short condensed history and talking about uh, how that history kind of provides this similar backdrop to what you look for in a gothic horror story. I think it's fascinating that because our history is so condensed, you don't necessarily need these ancient ghosts to be your metaphor for what happened. Like your ghosts, especially in the South, are still walking around in mm. a lot of cases. It it's it's a grandpa in the South who they remember their grandpa like dealing with a lot of the the, the trauma um, that society is still dealing with nowadays and trying to build back out of that. So having these having these specters of our past, like still tangibly physically with us, it sets the stage for something really cool here. I know you are uh, based on a Twitter conversation. I saw, I know you are contemplating diving into Michael McDowell's Blackwater. And I think he does a just absolutely brilliant job in the elementals and in Blackwater of kind of wrangling with that Southern Gothic horror approach. Uh, and and putting all of those concepts face first. So uh, once you're done with that book, I want to hear your thoughts. <laughs> oh, definitely. I can't wait to read it. People have been telling me to read it for, since I started the show. I've just, you know, I don't have any spare time, but maybe over the next two weeks, that's the one I'll pick and, and read for my Christmas break. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, to the point about, you know, you, you don't need those metaphorical ghosts. So in in kind of, you know, wanky academic terms, there's this real fucking painful tendency to gothicize everything to the point where you say oh that's gothic and that's gothic and that's gothic and it just becomes meaningless you know but i would say that i could sit down and i could write a lovely essay i'm not going to but i could about how the maga phenomenon is gothic yeah because you're taught what what you're looking at with that is the the resurrection of you know historical trauma and the resurrection of a a haunted past that's literally walking the streets probably carrying shotguns you know yeah and that's the the usefulness of gothic is that you can use it as a metaphor for pretty much anything to do with the past coming back to damage the present but it's the damage that is important it can't come past come back benignly it comes back with the intention to disrupt and damage the present day. So yeah, you, I, I'm surprised someone hasn't used, you know, the whole gothic thing as a as a framework to understand the political si- situation in America and over here in the UK at the minute, where we we seem desperate on on kind of resurrecting the fucking empire as a, a thing that we seem to want to have again, despite it being a scene of complete horror. It's happening all over the place, you know, and. And that's what gets fascinated about these topics, gothic horror. It's just endlessly usable and endlessly kind of like translatable to different situations as a as a way to understand the, the impact of yesterday on today. 
yeah, there's that whole history repeating itself mm-hmm. slant and it's just yeah. painful to watch it take place. And yeah, both of our countries are in really weird spots right oh, now. Oh, Christ, I know. It, it, it seems like we're maybe possibly over the hump of the MAGA stuff here with with all of Trump's cronies getting their butts handed to them in our midterm elections. Like, yeah. woo, cheers. Yeah. Fingers crossed. This we is the beginning of the end there. But yeah, I know in... Yeah. in but, uh, with Brexit and uh, with your, y'all's uh, rotating prime ministers, yeah, yeah I think you're I'm kind up of next. in a similar. Yeah, what's that? I think I'm up for the job next. It's just, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I get sidetracked. <laughs> I'd I'd vote for you, or I guess, oh my gosh, British politics throw me off so much. I would I would vote for a parliament member that would vote for you. Is that how that works? Sort of, yeah. Well, that's what it's, <laughs> no, no, it's not actually. No, let's not get into it. It's a fucking nightmare, and it makes me angry. <laughs> All right, leaving it alone. Uh, let, <laughs> let's go to Salem's Lot. I feel yeah. like the Marsden House is less terrifying than anything we're referencing here. Yeah, yeah. So with Salem's Lot, we see Stephen King in one of his first books. I think this is number two for mm-hmm. him or three for him, right? Mm-hmm. Number two. Number two. Yeah. Very early on in his career, though, taking this big swing at a uh, a very gothic sort of a story. Um, we've got a lot of similar elements to Bram Stoker's Dracula and like literally the vampires. But beyond that, um, the, there's a lot of other echoes at play here, too. For your money, what does Salem's Lot do well or not well for the gothic genre right what i think it I, I think salem's lot is a great way to talk about contemporary american gothic because american gothic is, is you know it's its own thing washington irving charles brockton brown you know poe all the way through um i think it does two things i think it it really well actually it does three things one it it really does a good job of setting the scene of an entire community um, in a in a gothic environment, as opposed to one character. The standard story is a character enters an environment and everything's a bit weird, and then they have to navigate that and hopefully survive with their lives. What what King does in Salem's Lot is create an, an entire environment of normality and then bring the disrupting influence into it. And I think that's quite a profound shift of story um because it's about the, the the normal american life being attacked by the gothic which is now kind of the way that tends to be the default when before it wasn't um i'm not saying king introduced that but he does it really really well second thing is um he he basically takes the dracula he takes dracula to to america i mean i don't, I don't even know but this book was going to be called second coming because it was it was in, he basically said he wanted to see what would happen if you dropped Dracula in present day America, and he was going to call it Second Coming, and then he was told not to because Pete, this publisher thought it sounded like a kind of erotic thriller. So, so we changed the Salem, <laughs> yeah. So we changed the Salem's that. lot, and but it, it is a very traditional vampire who comes in. You know, it may as well be Dracula, uh, Barlow, but weirdly. The vampire isn't the most gothic element of the book, and it's certainly not the most important gothic element. 
the important one is the Marston house, as you said. And this is what he, he really does. And he does it again. He doesn't introduce it, but I think he does it really, really, really well. Is create the idea of the American bad place. Now, he, the Martin House is kind of admittedly an ode to Hill House from Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. And I nearly picked that book to talk about, but I've talked about that book to death on my own show. And I thought this was more fun. Because Hill House, you know, whatever walks there walks alone and the sense of a place that is just bad in its cement and bones and wood and it's just bad. And the Martin House is that like turned up to 11 with a with a kind of story behind it, with a, a kind of reason why it is that way. And then he would go on to do it again in The Shining with the Overlook, which, which again is a place that is just bad. But that is a uniquely american set idea a place that is bad because in european and british gothic it tends to be that like haunted places are the scene of bad things they are the scene of trauma and they are the stage for the reenactment of that trauma but they are not in themselves evil and american haunted houses far more often are they can there's a kind of ambiguous sense of how sentient they are how how cognizant they are of of what they're doing to the people who inhabit them you know you've got salem's lot you've got the overlook hotel you've got Anne river siddons the house next door you've got daniel's house of leaves you know i can i could probably think of three dozen amateurville house you know like the the, the house itself is a danger um and that I think is what Salem's Lot introduces most successfully. So that's really interesting to think about because I can't pinpoint any particularly American reason why that would be a, a thing with us. Like with, with blaming our evils on a house or creating these, these areas that are so evil because again, that that's a big thing in America with such a short history, like we have this sense of ownership, like we built everything uh, that, that we're in. So if we have a house that's inherently evil, or if we have a hotel that's inherently evil or what have you, there's going to be this sense in America of like, okay, well, who made that that way? Uh, whereas maybe in European pieces, the history of a house or the history of a castle can kind of get lost amongst the ages. Mm-hmm. In America, it's like, no, 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 this thing came from somewhere, uh, something that we, uh, either appropriately or, appropriately or not, we feel like we have a hand in. So that's really interesting. I I want to do some, like, I want to talk to a psychologist about where that, that mentality might have sprung from. Yeah, because I... Any I, thoughts? I, I, hmm, no, it's a good question. I don't... I've been talking about the American bad place for years and never actually once thought why. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of on my, on my back foot now because the kind of obvious answer would be that some American houses are built on sites of such recent horror that they almost seem like living kind of, you know, emblems or, or statues or commemorations of that horror 
But that only works in some cases. I mean, to my, it's been a while since I've read the book, but to my memory, there is no reference to the Marson house being built on kind of tainted land. It's just the idea that Hubie Marston, the guy who built it, like went a bit mad and like killed his family and hung himself in the attic. But I can't remember any reason, any kind of predating reason about like the blooded ground, why that would happen at all. So no, so I think yeah, I think I think generally speaking, you could say it's because of that kind of recent sight of of horror and what the, what the house on top of it represents. But maybe the Marston House is one of those examples that you know this like contradicts the rule because even even the Overlook, like Kubrick, went to pains to try and make this you know these threads of the idea that it was built upon a native burial ground but that's not the case in the book at all there's not none of that is there so yeah I, sorry i'm just musing now i can't really answer your question i don't know what it is in the american psyche that makes houses evil yeah okay big question for another day well, mm. one of us will have an epiphany in the middle of the night and just yeah. like start start texting each other but let's let's bring it back instead then to something else that you brought up with this idea that this time the evil comes to uh, a town because that is this big this big cornerstone of the other pieces we're talking about here dracula keanu mm-hmm. reeves has to go to the castle for everything to get triggered and in uh crimson peak edith has to go to the house for everything to really start spiraling on her mm-hmm. her dad's dead yes but otherwise she has to go to the house and woman in black uh we have to go to the house but here it comes to us and there's still this sense of isolation, I guess. So the Marston house is a little bit set off from the rest of the town, and the town itself is very set off from the rest of, of the world and the community. Um, they, they, they feel kind of like they're living on this island here. But it's brilliant how Stephen King manages to build such a vibrant, lived-in sort of a community before the evil takes takes root and even as the vampires are kind of like working their way through salem's lot you're still getting these pieces of what this town was like in the before times and what these people were like in the before times so so that it makes the tragedy of their downfall like even more potent i guess i don't know if i'm really driving at a question here (laughs) just rambling myself I don't know. Any any more thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I, I think it... I, I don't think there's any kind of surprise that horror burst into the mainstream in the wake of, you know, Watergate and, you know, the, the general sense of American misdeed abroad in Vietnam and the, the sort of the, just the growing cynicism around the government and the enemies lists and, and things like that. I don't think it's any surprise that we got a new breed of American horror, which was based around normal life being disrupted. Because I think for the first time, that generation, you know, that came after the the golden generation, they were going into a, into a newly cynical world where this, this seemingly perfect picket fence, you know, you know, if you were white and Protestant, this, um, this perfect picket sense picket fence life was for the first time under threat from the you know not only 
elements of darkness, but elements of darkness within the establishment. I think that was coming to the fore. So I think that's where some of that comes from. Um, and, and King has always excelled at, at writing stories about, I wouldn't say normal, but functioning communities that soon begin to, you know, malfunction when something enters them that isn't part of the norm. I think he, he, I think he's an inherently conservative writer who likes his idea of horror is normal American life coming apart at the seams. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something he's always done very, very well. And, and no one writes kind of muscular American realism within genre like Stephen King. Literally, obviously, it's the thing I love him for the most. I, I've long said I don't think he actually is a horror writer. I think he is a realist who hides his realist novels within genre. But the, the one thing, I think, to pick up on your thing about the isolation, there is a cool thing that I can't remember. I've read it in one of his nonfiction books where he talks about Salem's Lot being inspired by a supposedly true story about a town in Vermont called Jeremiah's Lot that in which a whole sect, a religious sect, I think they were Quakers or, or Shakers or something like that, they just disappeared like, in a very short space of time and no one knows where they went and what happened to them. And that's what inspired him to write what happens to Salem's lot. And um, I just think he's fascinated by this idea of the norm normal being torn asunder by, by the forces of evil. Yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking through all of his stuff. Like we see that in needful things. We see mm. that in it. We see that in the outsider. He, he pulls kind of that, that trick over and over again and flavors it differently with a different monster. But yeah. yeah. See, it's a good uh, one. It, it's the, it. I mean, when he wrote, I mean, people who know me know I talk about it far too much. It's my favorite book. But when we talk about the bad place, um, in it, he went, he went for it because he doesn't have a house. He has an entire city that is the bad place. You know, but the same rules apply. There is something malign in this place. However, you know, you can pin it down in it. It's it's Pennywise. It's it's you know it's it's the deadlights. It's the clown. In other but in other stories, you can't pin down quite what the thing is. But it's still this sense that somewhere is not f- fit for humans to be, and it's right in the middle of civilization. I think that's just a fascinating setup for horror stories. So I think this leads really well into what I was intending to be our closing question, but I want to go ahead and pose it now. I was going to ask you, where do you see gothic horror going from here? Kind of what's the next stage in the evolution? But we've been talking about this trend for a minute now of the expansion of the bad. Mm. It, it was isolated to being within one certain location in, in, in Dracula and Crimson Peak in that manner. And then we brought it to American Gothic and now it's, it's the bad house and then it's the bad city even if we want to paint it as american gothic which it's not really but whatever i'm just going to go with the trend here yeah or i i don't think it is at least but if we see this expansion of the bad do you think gothic works continue working on that do we see like bad gothic nation or gothic island or something next or, or do you think we start contracting next? Or I don't know. In your mind, what, where is all this leading us? That's a great question. So, because my all of my studies kind of reached an endpoint where I'd looked at how the Gothic became so self-referential 
and so self-aware that it almost had nowhere left to go. I, I kind of came up with the theory that after House of Leaves, there was nothing left to do. <laughs> and we have seemingly exhausted the space for parody and pastiche. And I, I do wonder if we're going to get a return to a wholehearted kind of gothic. And I really hope we do, because I feel like I feel like culture is going that way generally. And I feel like the gothic is particularly well equipped for it. So I, I there's, a, there's a sort of kind of critical term called the dominant. Right. And the idea behind the dominant is that. Is this all right? I'm just, I am just spitballing there. Is this okay to just yes, talk? Yes, no, no, this is great. Right, so <laughs> the, the dominant, I can't remember, it's some French or Russian theorist, I don't know. The, the I've forgotten more than I've known. The idea, the idea behind the dominant is that every era, and generally it works in decades, generally, but not always, every era is governed by kind of like a dominating cultural purpose or zeitgeist or, or whatever and so you've got like in the 90s was just defined by irony and sort of nihilism you know across all different kinds of media and we are talking about western stuff here as well without before people start saying i haven't thought about other things i'm trapped within a western mindset um so you had like nihilism and an irony and then you got at the turn of the millennia you got this really kind of empty nostalgia quite a worrying nostalgia, which I think has led to, you know, make America great again. It's led to Brexit, this idea that things were better in the past, but it was an empty nostalgia. You know, I I can make the argument that Downton Abbey and Genesis touring again, you can link them to what's gone wrong with the entire world. We're all craving this thing from our own childhood. We're all craving. There's a reason that everyone who grew up in the 80s is now making things that reference the 80s, you know, set Stranger Things, etc. We're all craving a return to what we were happy with when we were kids, and but it's empty, and I find it quite cynical. And I, what I've seen recently in fiction, particularly, is a return to really earnest storytelling to the point where it's so earnest that I've almost thought it was a parody because I've become so used to reading things that are subversive or that play with tropes, or that deconstruct kind of narrative, that when I find something that isn't, I'm like, oh, where's the punchline? Like, surely they can't just be saying that. You know, but I think it is going that way. Um, the book that comes immediately to mind is Ronald Malfi's Come With Me, which all the way through I was waiting for some big twist. No, no, it's just a, a piece of supremely good storytelling that believes in its own story and tells it. And if that continues, I feel like the gothic, more than most subgenres, is absolutely just like queued up for it. Because the gothic is all about earnestness and it's all about, you know, like really going all in, basically. You know, you look at Crimson Peak and you, all right, Crimson Peak played around. It was a bit self-commentating. It was a bit self-referential, but it's all in on what it is. Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, definitely all in on what it is, <laughs> you know. And and I feel like if we do, if the Gothic Dusters decide to just become about itself, just become like a story that is about ghosts and haunted houses and, and things from the past coming back into the future without the need to play around with it and make it clever, I would applaud that for a decade. Of course, then something else will happen and we'll start to spin off somewhere else. But I would happily take a decade of authentic, well-meaning, 
really really fascinating gothic fiction nice i i want it to <laughs> but this this leads to kind of our closing uh our closing thing to talk about i think with the woman in black yes uh, if you're talking about a gothic piece that just plays it straight, this mm -hmm. is that. It is a, in my mind, timeless sort of a tale. There's not a lot of weird bells and whistles thrown in here. They they just they play it very straight. Yeah. With this woman in black haunting, haunting, what is it? The moors, the river. Either uh, way. Yeah, Eel Marsh House. The house is called. Yes. Eden Marsh house. But something that's fascinating about this with me when you pitched it for the episode was there are so many iterations of this story, even though it's not that old of a story. We mm -hmm. see that there is Susan Hill's book and there is a movie and there is a, a stage play adaptation. We've got all these different mediums tackling the same, the same story and the same Gothic approach. So if we are having this return to straightforward Gothicism, that's not a word, whatever. If we are having this return, what could each of those mediums do for Gothic horror again if, as we come back to it? And maybe we use the woman in black as like a reference point here. Okay. That's a, that's a big question. Yes. So... You are right. The Woman in Black plays it entirely straight. And it is one of those books that when you read it, being so conditioned by postmodernism, you're kind of a little bit like, hang on, what? There's no there's no big narrative twist at the end. We don't find out. It was all some dream. It, it, you're kind of flummoxed by it. Yet, weirdly, the play, which I think is the greatest iteration of this story, the, the play is quite experimental because it's, it's just two actors on stage and it's becomes like a play within a play because I, I get confused by this. So one actor is playing Arthur Kipps. When it starts, there's an old guy and a young guy. And the old guy is playing Arthur Kipps, who for one, for those who don't know, is basically Daniel Radcliffe's character, right? The old guy is playing Arthur Kipps, talking to a young guy. And then for reasons I can't quite remember, the young guy starts telling, uh, Arthur Kipps st starts telling the young guy the story. And then they switch because suddenly you are not watching those two characters. You are watching the memory. And in the memory, the younger actor starts playing Arthur Kipps and the older actor starts playing everyone else. Does that, does that make sense? I haven't made that very yes. clear. Um, so that's, that's quite a clever experimental way to tell an otherwise very kind of, you know, traditional story um and it's it it's terrifying i mean it, it nearly killed my dad when we went to see it honestly he leapt out of his seat into my lap when he saw the woman in black uh, yeah but sorry i've gone on, on a tangent your question was what can the three mediums do if the if the gothic does become more earnest well i'm not yes. a i'm not a, a a scholar of the stage i know nothing about it but i do know we do seem to be getting more and more ghost stories for the stage there's there's one doing the rounds at the minute called 222, which I, I haven't seen. I had tickets, but I had also got COVID. Um, and that's kind of created by a guy called Danny Robbins. And this is a plug. If you haven't listened to Danny Robbins' podcasts, you must do so. Um, 
the, the, there's one called the Battersea Poltergeist and there's one called the Witch House. And they are kind of half dramatizations, half journalistic investigations into a pair of very famous British hauntings. And at the time of recording, the Witch House has literally just finished. It's all over Twitter. But by by February or whenever this goes live, it will have kind of been forgotten about. And I recommend everyone go to listen to those two podcasts because they're great. Sorry. But Danny created this play called 222, which seems to be a genuinely quite scary stage play. There was also one called Ghost Story, created by a guy called Andrew Andy Nyman, based on a very, very postmodern book. And then they made a film with Martin Freeman and other people. And that's another really experimental text that went from book into play into film again. So it does seem like the stage is like a really compelling place for for Gothic, particularly. Um, I just recently went to see a guy called, I can't remember his name though, it's something Lloyd Parry, but he's, he's part of a theatre group called Nunky Theatre. And it's amazing. He just sits on stage in, in the guise of M.R. James and literally tells you an M.R. James story by candlelight. That's all it is. But it's just the most meditative fascinating experience when you hear those stories just performed like that it's just i came out feeling like i'd had like i'd had like a two-hour massage and spa i felt like rejuvenated just by it. i was so just so relaxed and at the same time invigorated it's if you can if you can see the nunky theater do mr james go and see it but that's all i can say i can't say what it's going to do what the trend's going to be i don't know enough about theater at all Books and films, I mean, what do you say? I mean, I think books can do whatever the hell they want. If if someone wanted to make, just start writing authentic gothic stories again, I think the appetite is there. I think it would perhaps closely align with the appetite for romantic fiction, which is much closer sometimes to traditional gothic fiction than people realise, um, except sometimes without the happy ending that, is so important in that genre. But yeah, I think the audience is just there for conventional, really, really well done ghost stories or haunted house stories or gothic stories or anything like that, particularly this time of year when it's cold and people want to sit in an armchair and read. The one that will struggle, I think, is cinema. Because I think now we are, I think we've become really conditioned to expect a kind of rug pull or, or bells and whistles in our horror cinema I, I think and quite often when when we when cinema tries to go full-on gothic well look at the top look, look at the films we talked about you know crimson peak becomes quite referential and and, and playful uh francis for a couple of dracula fucking batshit uh, things like sleepy hollow i love the film but it is it, it rides the line very close to pastiche and i think that is a it's a very hard thing to tell an authentic gothic story these days without becoming a pastiche. I don't think people have got the confidence just to go, this is what it is, here it is, there's no trick. But The Woman in Black shows that it can be done because I think The Woman in Black is authentically the scariest film made in like the last 10 years. Just in what it is, like forget Hereditary, forget The Conjuring, forget all these like shockers. I'm talking sit down on your own Put the woman in black on in a dark room and tell me that you don't watch through your hands. Doesn't disturb you. Doesn't, you know, leave, doesn't send, send you to bed haunted. Doesn't, you know, get under your skin. 
But for the 90-something minutes you're watching that film, it is impossible to be relaxed. I think it is as close to a perfect delivery of momentary terror that I've ever watched. And I made my wife, who hates horror films, watch it. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So, I think Make the Woman in Black your guiding light, I think. I think that's what you do, particularly in film. Make the Woman in Black. If you want to tell an authentic ghost story, an authentic gothic horror story, watch the Woman in Black. Do what they did in your own way and have confidence in it. That's that's my maxim to which whichever filmmaker might be listening. Nice. I know I, I read an interview with Daniel Radcliffe at one point that was effectively, he made so much money off of Harry Potter that he only has to do roles that he really wants to do nowadays. Yeah. It it opens him up to do weird shit like Swiss Army Man, yeah. but it also opens him up to dive into a movie like Woman in Black, where they're just playing it so straight and trying to do something mm. unique and authentic there. Mm. I mean, I'll tell you who's doing it. Yeah. We've forgotten the obvious elephant in the room. The person who's doing it is Mike Flanagan, you know, because... How did that elude me? Well, me too. I mean... I'm desperate to get Mike Flanagan on my show because I think he is the single most literary director making anything at the minute. I think even outside the genre, he just understands storytelling. He takes a book and makes a show out of it without even really changing the medium, if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? It's as close to a book that a show or a film can be in the in the way the storytelling works. And you look at, you know, The Haunting of Hill House, which I didn't love as much as most people but it's masterful in that he just commits to the authenticity. He doesn't there's no twist. There's no I keep using the word rug pull, but he just follows through on the the conviction that that story is good enough. And Christ, does it work? You know, it, I mean, it 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 really works. I think it's got more flaws than other people admit, but when it works, it really works. And then Midnight Mass. I would argue is is the, the the best televisual horror I've ever seen. So yeah, like Woman in Black, fantastic model, but just watch Mike Flanagan. He's the person who's returned the Gothic to its not to you know what he's not even going backwards. He's going forwards, but he's going forwards in a way that you know finds what makes the Gothic work. Yeah, just masterful. I'm fascinated to see what his next project mm. is with Amazon. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see Usher first and foremost. I want to see what he does with Usher because, well, yes, <laughs> I uh, that's the house of Usher. Not he, he's not making an R and B video, but he um, because everything we've talked about with these kind of you know grand guino excessive set pieces and the architecture and the costumes and the the apparatus of Gothic and how you know, well, let's face it, we all, we, we love that excess. That's what we come to Gothic for, at least in the visual sense. I would say that House of Usher is the first one that will allow him to exploit that if he wants to, because in his previous three offerings, Bly Manor a little bit, but it's been fairly pared down by necessity because they've been very everyday American settings into which this horror comes, the Stephen King model. Whereas with with Poe, 
I mean, he could do what he wants. He could make it some absolutely baroque monstrosity of a house. I mean, I don't know what he's going to do, but I'm, I'm excited to see what he does with the with the, the aesthetic of it all. Yeah, I... Oh, okay, so for closing for the episode, I vote we all go watch House of Usher when it comes out mm-hmm. and then reconvene <laughs> to tie it into everything else. Yeah. Any closing thoughts on gothic horror, these pieces? Is there anything we missed while we were going through this that you want to circle back to? Um, well, I, I want to apologize for the absolute just like waffle that I opened this conversation with about what is gothic horror because I, I've, I've answered that question enough times that I should have an elevator pitch answer. And instead I talked for like five minutes and left people more confused when we started. So I do apologize. I can do better than that. Um, and I'm, I am more articulate on my own show when I'm not the one answering the questions. Um, but no, I think you've asked fantastic questions. I think you, you've kind of found all of the, the kind of nodes that, that make these different texts Gothic and, and ask me about them, and, and I've, I've tried to answer. I think what's interesting, what remains to be said, is that Crimson Peak, Dracula, The Woman in Black, Salem's Lot, are four very, very different stories. And I can't think of many reasons to gather them all together and talk about them on one show. And that is a testament to both the strength and the... The, the strength of Gothic, that it can accommodate so many different things, but also the kind of pointlessness these days of it as a term, because when it applies to everything, it starts to become a problem. Do you know what I mean? So I think we need to perhaps refine what we mean by Gothic going forwards a little bit better than I did at the start of this conversation. It's it's all reminding me very much of the whole elevated horror conversation right now. Like, mm. What does that even mean? <laughs> and everybody like kind of beating themselves up trying to trying to nail it down. But yeah, I, I think it is great to have an excuse to talk about all four of these together. But as far as keeping that umbrella a little bit tighter, mm. I think that makes a lot oh, that makes a lot of sense, so that we can have an understood definition for what we're talking about moving forward. What's, what's the point of words if they don't mean something? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This was enlightening. I love these episodes where I learn stuff over the course of the episodes. I think you, you certainly did that today. Uh, and Trevor Henderson's uh, episode from uh, season one where we talked about horror for kids. It's a very similar sort of a discussion as this one. So listeners, if if you liked the kind of educational slant that this, this episode got to it, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. Uh, and also like buy all of Slayhouse's books. Uh, they're doing great work over there. But coming back to you. Uh, so Neil, in closing, one more time, where can our listeners find you? Uh, if they liked this discussion, where can they try to connect with you? Let's pitch Talking Scared one more time because I just, I cannot say enough good things about it. Well, thank you. Um, if, well, basically you can find me on all the major sort of podcast platforms. You just talk, I can't even speak. Can I do that again? Sorry. Can I, we kind of just start that bit again. I got tongue tied. Um, well, First of all, thanks. And you can find me wherever you find podcasts. I'm on all the, the normal places. You just search for Talking Scared. 
and there I will be. Uh, and please do. I don't have a website yet because I'm an absolute Luddite, but I am going to be getting there in the new year and then I can direct people to that. So to speak to me, you just go to generally Twitter and it's Talk Scared Pod. I'm also on Instagram or Deep Intake of Breath TikTok by the same handle. Or you can email me at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. Oh, and I'm also curating the horror content for Esquire Online next year, this year when this goes live. So if you want to see me write things about horror books and stuff, you can go to Esquire, search my name, and there I will be. Very cool. And I know, were they were they the magazine that you did your top 25 books of 2022 for? The, yeah. the best horror books of 2022? Yeah, yeah. And I also ranked, I, I did like, I ranked the best, the top 50 horror novels of all time. Um, I did the books of the year and I also ranked every single Stephen King book that the man ever wrote. And there are 75 of them. And it took me 11,000 words and I nearly died. <laughs> I'm so glad you didn't, but I am glad that we got that list from you because uh, just looking over the lists, like you, you bring up so many brilliant pieces and like all of the ones that I haven't read, like based on the ones surrounding them, I trust that I need to go read them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those lists, the Esquire, the podcast, just like anywhere you can find more Neil McRobert, you owe it to yourselves to do that. That just about wraps us up for this episode. So to everybody listening, thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget to like or subscribe or move into a secluded castle surrounded by the marshes of your streaming service of choice. And we will see you next time. I'm William Sterling. This has been another episode of the Killer Mediums podcast. Coroners tied bells to everybody in the morgue, so if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. <laughs> <laughs>